All right, everyone. Welcome back. Colin, hello. Hello, John. Good to see you. Very good to see you as well. Okay, so what we have been doing is we have been exploring the topic of digital product development and digital transformation using Colin's book, Make, Learn, Change, as a springboard. And where we have been focusing our discussion is on this relationship between making product, getting something into a customer's hands so that I can get some form of feedback, learning from that feedback, or learning about the obstacles that are preventing us from getting that feedback quickly, and then the activity of what we need to do to change so that we can work you know, in an organization that is closer aligned to those aspirational goals. What ultimately I think this way of working is trying to help you realize is a reduction in the risk that is inherent in digital product development. It allows your organization to become a more effective, more efficient organization in that delivery of product that is that is meaningful to your customers. And as lingo-y as it may sound, it is also, I think, helping you create an organization in which everyone is on a path of continually learning. Colin, do you want to add anything to that? I think that last point is the, is the really critical one. Uh, I mean, they're all important, but there's something really central to what this way of working is trying to instill. It's to, it's to recognize that the future is uncertain when it comes to doing digital products. And therefore, having this mindset or this way of looking at that as an opportunity to learn as you go and incorporate that learning is just, it's, it's, it's like everything that this whole thing is about. It's really, really about that. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, really, really, really well put. And I think what Colin and I see so often, and this is what we want to start unpacking in this session, is how often the emphasis is on the practices versus this underlying principle of, of learning. And where, where we got to in our last session was we were really exploring the topic of learning as you start making product. What are the things that you're going to start learning about and how do you help your organization facilitate change? Where, Colin, where I'd like to go to today is, um, you know, we talk a lot about this idea of a mindset shift. Anyone who's been through any form of a quote-unquote agile transformation or some type of digital product transformation will most likely see that term. I feel that so many of these transformations fall flat largely because they don't have, they have not made explicit their theory of shifting minds. How are we actually going to do that? What they've done, or what I see, is there's an implicit theory, which is if we can give you enough PowerPoint 
and give you enough documents and, and resources and YouTube videos that you will somehow, some way, change. If they were writing your book, <laughs> the title, I think, would be PowerPoint Learn Change. <laughs> the, the, the emphasis is on this this didactic approach of a teaching dimension. You're the pupil, we're the consultants, coaches that are the teachers. Versus, well, I guess maybe it's if it's not obvious, you know, I, I disagree with that approach. I disagree with that model. And, you know, knowing, knowing you and, and seeing the book, I know that you're of a similar ilk. I am, and that's because I've, just like you, witnessed so much time, energy, and funds go into these large transformation programs that have completely ignored the fact that it isn't about what you're doing, although there are things to do, and it's about the way you approach those things. And, I, you know, I don't have a simple answer for how do you change mindset. mindset. I think, in my experience, um, what I've noticed is more effective than not is people seeing what good looks like and be inspired by that. And then really inquiring into why is that working compared to what I'm doing with a genuine curiosity. So that, you know, that's a, that's a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a very uh, unpredictable approach to try to get people to change their minds, but it is the way in which I've seen work. So let's take that a little further into you know, our goal with this this podcast, if we can be so bold to, you know, call three sessions a podcast, <laughs> um, but our goal is to help listeners to give them some actions, to offer them questions that they can bring into their organization, you know, immediately now. So what would be just from that little nugget of of, hey, what does good look like I'm a I'm a CIO. I'm a program manager. I have a maybe I'm a senior manager with a small medium-sized portfolio, entrepreneur in a startup. Give me something to do. Help me. Yeah, so I think that it's a little bit chicken and egg in, in this at this stage of what we're talking about because they have to have bought into at least conceptually what are some of the things they are looking to get out of working in a different way? So let's assume for the purpose of this part that they have bought in. They've been, they've been sold on an idea that if we work in this different way, we will get better results, time to market, better quality products, products that our clients love, our customers love, and so on. So let's assume that. If that's the case, then the inquiry is into what questions do I ask of my teams? In other words, do I ask them questions that encourage the behaviors that support getting those outcomes? Mm -hmm. So let's, let's get really practical here. If I ask a team a very reasonable and practical question, what am I going to get and when am I going to get it? So those two questions are very reasonable questions to ask. What am I going to get and when am I going to get it? Yep. However, if you think about what is underlying someone asking those questions it's a quest for certainty what am i going to get 
In other words, tell me with some certainty what I'm getting. And when am I going to get it? Tell me with some certainty when it's going to land, when it's going to land. And that means that the mindset bringing that word in that accompanies someone who asks those questions is not acknowledging that the journey we're on is one of uncertainty. Mm, mm, I mean, yeah. that is a huge shift for people in, in any, any walk of, of life to accept that the world that we're working in is one of uncertainty. And if you can't get your head around that, you will not be able to inspire your teams to operate in a way that gets the outcomes that we're aiming for. Okay. I'm going to just pause right there because I think to me, I hear two actions. I would just, I'm going to challenge this idea that you need to buy into a way of working. I have the feeling that a lot of people who have not bought into say an agile or DevOps way of working, they do want to reduce risk. They, yes. they can talk in, what you might call a non-agile or non-DevOps language or even a way of working language. Maybe I would like some greater predictability. Yeah. But I think you've hit on something really critical. So as a starting point, I myself, as a person with power or authority in an organization, have to start wrestling with my own worldview that the world is not a certain place, that I, in this, or, uh, well, forget, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't make it so existential, <laughs> and just say digital product delivery doesn't, doesn't have this type of certainty in it that I may want, I wish I could have. And that you can't plan it into certainty. You cannot, right, you cannot, you're not going to be able to force it. So just, right. be, you're not going to be able to, to wish that uncertainty away. No Gantt chart. We'll do that. We'll do it. It will give you an illusion of certainty. It may offer you a thinking pad about the steps you need to take, but it will not remove the uncertainty. And just to add another layer to that, it also isn't going to be a reflection on the capabilities and skills of the team working on that Gantt chart that they're unable to predict how things are going to unfold. Do you want to elaborate on that one? Yeah. It's very easy, I think, if you are in a position of a very senior role where you're not actually the one doing the work. You're the one who is overseeing the work, sponsoring the work, and so on. It's very easy to get the results of the efforts of the team, which is some kind of plan. And when things don't go to plan, decide that what went wrong was that the people didn't have the skills or capability to do that their jobs well, mm, right? Okay. So you criticize, you critique the effort and the, and the skills that were applied instead of acknowledging that there was nothing they could do to make that a certain plan, a plan that would predict how things would, would unfold. Okay, okay. So not only can you not will it in uncertainty into certainty, no Gantt chart's gonna get you there, and it's not a reflection of the skills of the people who created it. Things are uncertain, we can't will them into, to be certain. All right, let me go to action two, which was in your earlier scenario, which is around questions. And it's not just about questions, it is the types of questions that you are asking. So as I, in a senior management role or some position of authority, someone who has an influence over others in my organization, start to wrestle with the uncertainty that is inherent in digital product development, 
the types of questions that I ask can help facilitate the shifting of the mindset from one one worldview to another. Yeah, am I getting it? Absolutely. So asking, what am I going to get and when, when am I going to get it, is the worldview that you believe that there's certainty. If you don't believe there's certainty, you will ask a different set of questions. You ask things like, okay, well, given we don't know what we're actually going to be making, what we need to do is get something that we, we have a hunch is the right thing to make and get that in front of some customers. And we want to get that in front of those customers as soon as we can, because the sooner we do that, the sooner we find out whether we're on track or not is our thinking sound about what we think our customers want and how they're going to use it. So a good question to ask instead of what am I going to get and when am I going to get it is when is the soonest we have something in the hands of our customers? Beautiful. You know, if you, if you approach a team with that question, that will drive behaviors that are completely different than if you ask the former two questions I mentioned. Well, now what happens if the team says, well, I mean... You know, first we have to build a foundation and then we have to, you know, then we can put on the middleware layer, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what if, what if the answer is not for a while? What do I do? So then that is the signal to you that they are using a, an older way, the non-directional way, the way that we're aiming for in terms of how they want to build this. And that's a reasonable thing for them to be thinking because it's what they've been trained on. It's how they've learned to do mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So that is now the opportunity for you to challenge them to say, could you get it out faster? What would you have to do that might be radically different than what you do today to get it out faster? But, but are you just telling them just work harder? No, I'm saying get something into the hands of customers as soon as you can. Something small. Small. Important and meaningful to the customer as soon as you can. If, if, if that's a situation that you're facing, I think that you as a person in a leadership role are going to have to roll up your sleeves and probably bring your customers into the room and start working collectively to figure out what is that small thing that we can deliver. Because it's not about getting the database set up with a bunch of tables and then throwing those tables in front of your customers. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Give us another question, Colin. What's another question? Well, I think another question is, you know, if you have a team, you you can get to think about a thin slice. So, you know, what you're hinting at there is, what is something that is meaningful to the customer that's small enough that the team could build all the small, all the elements of just that piece so that could be shown in front of a customer. It's not a finished piece of work, but it is, um, it's something that the customer can respond to in a meaningful way because it's, it's something that's meaningful to them. So let's assume we can get there. And it might be, let's say, you know, historically, it might be that, that from a time they have something they want to put into the hands of a customer to the time it's actually done, that is, let's say, a year. That may not be unusual in a large organization. You might be challenging them to get that down to something smaller. Let's say they can do it in three months. That would be a massive step forward. And if they can do that, then the question is, when will you be able to show me that you've done that? So not only have you identified something you're going to get in front of the customer, you're working on it, and you put it in front of the customer, and you get some feedback, asking the question of when can you show me the results of having put something in front of the customer? If you can come at it with that perspective, you are valuing the feedback. You're saying that I, as a senior stakeholder in this business, care about hearing what the customer has said about what we put in front of them. And if I could make a suggestion on that even, you know, when are you sitting down with the customer? Because I'd like to sit in the room and hear their feedback. Even better. Even better. And I can tell, I have a little story I'd like to share. Go for it. Project I was on a while ago, 
was able to convince the most senior partner to come to what we would call a review session, which is this ritual that Colin is talking about in the Agile practices. Very early days. So, I mean, we had very little product to show. And, you know, we were just kind of getting on our feet. This was a two and a half hour session. A lot of time for someone that senior. Hmm. Sat in the back, looked at his iPad, kind of kept one ear in the session. And in the other, you know, I think just kept his emails, you know, just chugging along. And had no idea really how involved he was or not. At the end of that session, he asked me to stay back. And he told me, that's the best technology meeting I've ever been in. Right. And he said, it is the most informative meeting I've sat in. The technology team is clearly competent. I get it. You guys are, you know, in your early days. Totally get it. But I have to tell you, that is the most informative technology meeting I've ever sat in. Yeah. And I was just like, whoa. You know, and that is not unusual. When people get close enough to the work, they are often inspired by to see what's going on, especially when you show them things they understand, <laughs> like things a customer would understand. A- a- absolutely. Absolutely. And in our last session, I made a comment that no matter how small that piece of functionality is that you can get into your customer's hands, it is incredible what it opens up time and time again. I've seen teams get just the tiniest, you know, a few fields from a form. <laughs> and it's opened up the question, why are you bringing these fields in? Wait a minute, I don't think you understand what these forms are supposed to be doing. And yeah. everyone's like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah. it's a terrible experience, right? It's a very embarrassing experience. But, yeah. oh, it is so much nicer to hear it in, you know, week three or four yeah. than when you're in UAT, you know, at the very end, running through all the business processes. And I mean, it just, it's a radical difference. Yeah. Colin, you have any more? Yeah. And one of the things that I think uh, organizations struggle with is figuring out how to determine how much they should spend on a product. Yeah. Is this worth $5 million? Is it worth a million? Is it worth 200000 Like, How should they work out if they're spending too much or not enough? And because we're talking about a world of uncertainty and, you're, and you have to justify your expenditure, it's important to think about what happens if I think it's 500,000 and it ends up being 1.5 million? Mm. Because with that level of uncertainty, there's going to be a huge range of what this could actually cost. And when it comes to managing the return on investment and making sure you're making sound financial choices, we need to plan in that we actually don't know exactly what this is going to cost. So what is our upper limit to make this still worthwhile? I'm not saying plan to spend that much money, but how much can you afford it to be to still make it a worthwhile business case? Which is interesting because that is very much how people in investment actually work in venture capital and in you know managing just different investment portfolios. They have a collection of scenarios, or mm-hmm. often you will find this collection of scenarios of what if it goes this way, what if it goes this way? Is our thesis, does it still hold in that situation? Yeah. And what I find happens when projects are being sort of budgeted for, they're budgeted for at a very precise number. Very much so. Very much so. And then when things don't go as people anticipated, people freak out because the business case that we're only supposed to spend, you know, 1.2 million on this is now looking at 1.5. 
but what should have been considered is would this still make financial sense before we get started we think it's going to be 1.2 would this still make financial sense at double the price i'm not saying that all projects have to go over cost what i'm saying is that because we don't know what the cost is going to be we should figure out what is our margin of error that prepared to have and if it turns out your margin of error is very low you probably shouldn't do the project interesting yeah and if I could take it into actually the, you know, if, if that's what you're, that situation you're faced with in some form of digital product development, do an experiment. Come up with some safe to fail experiment that can test, you know, how can I start testing my hypotheses? That's the whole, for those that are familiar with the minimum viable product concept, you know, that's the whole premise behind that. What is the least I can do? to validate or invalidate my thinking about a business idea. Right. And it might mean that, you know, we talked about this being a risk mitigation approach. Would you prefer to spend 150000 and find out, you know what, this is not the way we should be going and have that money be quote unquote lost or assume it's all going to be great, spend $1.2 and find out it's a total flop. I, I think you're tying into something that's really important and maybe I could throw out... Uh, similar to this financial question, because I, I perceive a lot of projects often don't really have uh, what we would, you know, classic terms, business cases underneath them. They don't have sort of financial rigor, rigor, um, which is, you know, hey, that's not an agile issue, is it? You know, that that be, <laughs> but, but what I think you find in the agile space is that you get pressed harder around those questions. And so people start asking you, well, help me understand. There's a, there's a term called the cost of delay. Mm -hmm. um, and a term, uh, you know, a principle, which is asking you, okay, if this is delayed by three months, what's, what, what's it going to cost? Often people just don't have an answer to that. Which and then, sorry, just, just to be clear for people who may not be familiar with that, it's not just what it's going to cost in terms of outlay. It's what is the opportunity cost yeah, lost you. for benefits that this product is going to bring so if you're going to be if you planned on you know bringing the product out in march and you end up doing it in august what is the lost opportunity there by bringing it out several months late thank you thank you and too often no one has an answer to that which is just a flag that the financial rigor probably hasn't been done or even any type of form of you know that range those scenarios or estimates so we're getting close to the end of the time but there's something i, I think i want to make sure we don't we don't miss out on our, our listeners understanding what we mean. We're not saying that there should be, like you're writing a blank check when you do a project in an agile way. We're not saying that. We are saying that there's a lot of variability and our ability to understand that at the outset is, is, is limited. And therefore, we should still do the effort to figure out what we think things are gonna cost. We should have some sense of where we're going and that will require people who have experience, understand the market, understand what it takes to build digital products and so on. But we should accept that as the beginning understanding of what this will cost. And therefore, we have to have, if, if this is a project that we want to have the appropriate return on investment, we have to be able to accept that it may turn out to cost a meaningful amount more than that. Now, you have lots of options. That's the beautiful, beautiful thing about working in an agile way, is while you're going through this process, you can make trade-offs to say, listen, we can't spend more than X. And therefore, as we look at this, how do we maximize where we put that money? So one of the things that, this might be veering off a little bit more, maybe we can pick this up in a future session, but in determining 
what this thing should be. Like, how do we articulate? What features should it have? How should it work? It's very tempting to want to work out what that list is up front and mm-hmm. then go do some kind of yep. estimation process and say, okay, well, this is what it's going to cost to build this product. But the truth of the matter is we don't know if that's the right product. We'll know that more and more as we test things and put them in front of users. We also don't know what, where the balance of richness should exist across those features. So you may have hypothetically 10 significant features in an application. And of those 10, it might be worth dialing up three of those because that's really where the true value is to the customer. And that the other ones, they may not need to be sophisticated. It could be quite basic and straightforward because that's not where the heart of, of the, the experience is going to be. These are trade-offs you can make as you go because you are prepared to dial up and down, dial down your investment in different aspects of the product, especially for your first release. Colin, I, I feel I need to squeeze one more question in, <laughs> all right? But, but it's a big one. It's a big one because it's, you should sure lay the foundation, which is, which is, you know, what are the outcomes we're trying to achieve? Right. Too often we talk about, as Colin has said, a list of features, but what are the outcomes we're trying to achieve? Because that is our magnetic north. And that and is the thing we're trying to test. And go ahead. I was going to say, it feels like yet another episode we might want to talk about. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the idea of what are we trying to achieve? For some people, the answer is, well, I want more customers. That's the whole point of doing this product. But that is not a sufficient level of detail to understand how to shape that product. So you're trying to have outcomes for your customers. What are they what are they trying to achieve? And how are you going to achieve that through the product? And that may not match to this quote-unquote list of features you've come up with. Okay. Should, it was a hot one. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Well, I think I think a whole session on outcomes is is, you know, is in order. we do a few sessions. Yeah. All right. Should we try and recap? The theme has been around, you know, what is the theory of shifting minds? And I've argued that forcing people to view a lot of PowerPoints is not going to get you there. What we've talked about or what our a big belief is is that the types of questions you ask is going to help create that, that, that learning environment. That is going to be a tool for helping shift the minds from one worldview to another. In that, your own worldview is also going to have to shift as you, move, as you start to, or as you give greater acknowledgement to the fact that digital product development and delivery is fraught with uncertainty. Colin? Yeah. And then by the most powerful thing you have as a, as a leader in an organization is asking questions. And the questions you ask will drive behavior. And so selecting questions that are in line with supporting the type of way of working that you want, which is being able to be responsive to what it is that customers actually want, being able to um, get uh, the most value out of your investment. These types of questions that drive that belief that support this way of working will drive behavior and therefore mindset change. Absolutely. And if you can get yourself into that session where you're hearing feedback from your customers, highly recommend it. Do it. It's a powerful, powerful experience. Lots of Usually lots of very eye opening. Very, very eye opening. Yeah, absolutely. Colin, where do people get the book? They can get the book if they want to dig into some of the things that we've been talking about. They can get the book at um, us2.com slash agile dash leadership. Get a copy of the PDF from there. Everyone, thank you very much. We are looking forward to 
taking it up in our next session. Colin, thank you. Thanks, John. Talk to everyone soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.